The text that I'd like to draw your attention to this morning is Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. So if you're following along in your Bible, please turn there now. Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. And thank you, church, for singing praise to God and for singing encouraging words about Christ to one another. And thank you for music team for giving leadership in that. Uh, We know the Bible tells us not only are we worshiping God vertically, but we are instructing and encouraging one another horizontally in our singing. And I'm so grateful to be a part of a church that sings. So thank you for your ministry to me and to one another. I'm going to read our text and then pray for God's blessing. Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. And the he here is Jesus. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Our God who spoke these words and continues to speak them to us from your scriptures. We ask for your help to understand. We ask that you'd pour out your spirit even through me to open up the scriptures to see the glory of your son Jesus Christ in the eyes of our heart. Give us spiritual understanding and give us a heart, all of us, a heart that's inclined to believe and to obey in response to you showing yourself to us here. I pray that I would proclaim these things with faithfulness and clarity and that each hearer would meet you in a powerful way. Transform us for the uh, sake of Christ and into His likeness. Amen. For an object to be seen, two things must be true. First of all, the object itself has to be visible. Now that seems pretty obvious, right? Neither of these observations are going to seem too profound. The object has to be visible. But secondly, the subject of the seeing, the viewer, has to be looking. And they don't just have to be looking anywhere, they have to be looking in the right place. When I go running in low light early in the morning, especially in the winter, I try to wear bright clothes. I try to wear reflective things. I wear bright yellow reflective shoes. And I, and I hold in my hand a bright LED light that I sometimes will shine at, at cars in their, in their faces. Make sure they see me. I'm doing my part. But even then, I don't suppose myself completely safe from the risk of being hit by a vehicle. You know why? 
Because for all the brightness and reflectivity in the world that I may have, it won't do any good if they're not looking. If they're not looking. And I know that motorcyclists worry about this too because a lot of people driving cars are looking for cars. Like when we look to change lanes, we're looking for cars. We're not looking for motorcycles. And so often my, uh, even more than the reflectivity and the, the bright colors, my prayer, that's, that's my hedge of protection. I pray, God, make me very visible. Help them to see me. So yes, sight requires both a visible object and a well-seeing subject. A good pair of eyes and something for them to see. And in our text this morning, we join the Lord and His twelve disciples as they continue their journey to Jerusalem, where the Gospel story will climax in Jesus' cross and resurrection. Now, it's been well established by this point that Jesus knows where the story is headed. And He has tried three times to make it plain to His disciples I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer and die and be raised again. But at this point, we as the readers are not at all confident that the disciples understand that their master must suffer and die. In our text, they are in Jericho, which is about a day's journey from Jerusalem, and they are traveling for the Passover. And so they're surrounded by a crowd of fellow holiday pilgrims on the way on this major thoroughfare to Jerusalem. On the way, the story begins in verse 46, they encounter outside of Jericho a blind man, a beggar, whose appeal for mercy illustrates a powerful truth in line with a theme that's been building up throughout the Gospel of Mark up to this point. And here is the main idea of all of this. Here's the main thing we're going to see. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they alone can see Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they alone can see Jesus. Now you may recognize that as a riff on one of Jesus' famous Beatitudes in Matthew, these, these pronouncements of blessing, but with slightly modified wording. I believe the principle holds true for his encounter with this blind man. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they alone can see Jesus. And we'll see three ways in particular that this man's story shows us this principle. The first way is purity of heart. Let's see this man's purity of heart. Now, a great deal of the payoff of understanding this passage comes from recognizing its intentional contrast with the one that preceded it, verses 35 to 45. And if you were here with us last week, that's what we looked at. We saw two of Jesus' disciples, the brothers, James and John, approaching the Lord and asking Him for choice positions. In his coming kingdom, they wanted power and honor beside him on his Jerusalem throne. The other ten disciples reacted with jealousy because, guess what? They too shared the exact same selfish ambition for earthly greatness in their hearts. So, Jesus did three things there. First thing he did was he squashed their selfish ambition. In clambering for the ladder that leads upward, they are being just like the world. The second thing he did is he showed them the better way of his kingdom. In his kingdom, he says, true greatness is chasing the bottom, taking the lowly path of a servant to others. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And thirdly, he pointed to himself as the premier example of that voluntary service. 
Why was he headed to Jerusalem? Why did he even come as a man in the first place? Verse 45, he told us so emphatically to give his life in the place of sinners, to ransom us from the judgment of God by his atoning death. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, the servant of all servants. So to put that all in summary, we could say this. Last week, if we want Jesus to fulfill our selfish ambitions, we profoundly don't get who He is. And we profoundly have missed why He came. Now to zoom out our lens a little bit, Mark has spent a good deal of his Gospel training us to ask this question. Who can understand Jesus? Who can see Jesus? Who really sees Him? And in this central section of the book, going all the way back to chapter 8, verse 22, this section is bookended. It's a really elegant literary arrangement. It's bookended by two healings of blind men. And these are the only two accounts of the healings of blind men in the Gospel of Mark. And our passage today is the latter of these two. Closing off the central section before Jesus heads into Jerusalem for the climactic final phase of the Gospel crucifixion and resurrection. But in between these two healings, the disciples, they both confess, on the one hand, they confess Jesus to be the Christ, the promised, anointed deliverer from God. But on the other hand, they struggle mightily to see what that means. And the ambitious power play of James and John provided a great example of the cloudiness of vision that plagues the disciples through this section. They see that He's the one sent from God to save and to reign, but they don't see the place of self-denial and suffering and humility either in His life or in theirs. In their vision for Jesus' kingdom, they do not see a place for the cross. Which means that they're headed for a disastrous collision with reality since the cross is exactly where Jesus is headed in Jerusalem. So with this central section in Mark, again, bookended by these healings of blind men, these two healings come to symbolize spiritual perception of Jesus. Who can really see Jesus? And you may remember way back in chapter 8, the first healing of the blind man. It was kind of a unique miracle account. There's nothing like it in all the Gospels because the man was healed in two stages. Right? First, Jesus partially healed him and it was like he could see people walking around like trees and then Jesus completes the miracle. And what it represented was the partial vision of, of partial faith, clouded faith of the disciples throughout this section. They kind of get it and they kind of don't. So with all that in in context, this man's healing in our text today is meant to help answer that question. Who really can see Jesus for who He is? Who really can see Jesus? Jesus and His disciples are leaving Jericho, verse 46, and a blind beggar on the roadside begins calling for Him. And what does He specifically call out for in verses 47 and 48? When he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And it's repeated for emphasis. Verse 48, they try to silence him, the crowd, and he cries out all the more, have mercy on me. 
They're saying in between, stop bothering Jesus, dude. He has no time for lowly nobodies like you. They try to silence him. And does that remind you, do you hear any echoes of the disciples way back in verse 13, turning away the little children, little kids seeking Jesus, and they turn them away. And the same word rebuke is used there. The disciples, it says, uh, they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. It's the same thing happening. The crowd is saying, Jesus is too important for someone like you. So here the crowd represents what the disciples exhibited earlier in the chapter, then verse 13. The world's thinking about greatness. Jesus, of course, everyone gets in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is obviously important. Nobody is disputing that. But does his greatness mean that small children and the disabled and the poor don't qualify for his time and attention? That's the way people naturally reason. That's exactly the way the world thinks about greatness. And it's that kind of thinking that pollutes the disciples' vision. Now, an important echo, again, I I said that this passage, we have to understand it contrasting with the one that came before verses 35 to 45. An important echo, too, is that in verse 51 of our text, Jesus asks the exact same question that he asked back in chapter, in verse 36. I actually appreciate Wilson bringing this up in our community group last week. It's like, oh, that's good, good. Thanks for observing that. It's so true that when um, James and John... Ask him, what do they ask? We want you to do for us what we ask. There in verse 35. And he says, okay, what would you like me to do for you? And so they give him their specific request. In essence, exalt us. And his answer in essence is no, come be a servant like me. And so here it is again, the same same template. A general request, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus follows up with, What do you want me to do for you? And the man's specific answer is, heal me, give me sight. These two accounts, these two interactions, they have a similar flow, but the substance differs like night and day. In the prior case, we had proud men asking Jesus to fulfill their selfish, preening desires. Give us glory. But in this case, we have a needy and humble man simply asking for a merciful healing. So we've got selfish ambition and desperate neediness. Which do you think Jesus will answer favorably? But remember, in this context, the giving of sight is not simply a good thing he does for somebody. It's not simply fulfilling a request. It is a picture of someone gaining true understanding of who he is. So to the question we posed earlier, who gets to see Jesus? The answer that our text is giving us is it's the lowly. It's the humble. It's those whose hearts are pure of the polluting selfish ambition and pride that the disciples exhibit. The low place is the only vantage point for seeing the glory of Jesus. It's only the low place. Now, if you have air conditioning or heating vents in your home. I I trust that you do. You ever notice that the the metal slats are angled about 45 degrees? And when when you're on one side of the vent and you look up, all you see is the slats, right? You don't see past them because of the angle. But if you go to the other side of the vent and you look up, what do you see? You can see through them 
into the ductwork behind. So if you're looking with the grain of the, the angle of those slats in the vent, you can see through it. You can see better. You gain a penetrating vision of what's beyond. And it's the same way with Jesus. If you get to a high place to look at Jesus, you don't see. You can see something interesting maybe, but it's really confusing and it's partial and it's obscure. But if you go down to the low place and then from there look up at Jesus, you can see past the outward appearances and you can see the invisible spiritual reality of who He is. And that's what's being illustrated for us in this account. Now, in the way that we modern people typically think about knowledge, we are prone to neglecting the role of our desires and loves. We often think about knowledge as merely a cognitive intellectual matter on a completely different plane from what we desire and what we love and what we hate. But the Bible is emphatic that these dimensions work together and do a lot to to determine what we're able to perceive. So in other words, the idea of separating our head, the, the thinking part of us, from our heart, which is the wanting and loving part of us, that is a fiction. The human being does not work that way. Desires of a certain kind lead to knowing in a certain way. Or we could put it more accurately, certain kinds of desires will lead to better or worse attempts to know things. It changes our vision. Listen to Jesus' prayer in Matthew 11, verses 25 to 26. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, that is, who he is. You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And when he says, you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, he is putting implied air quotes around those things. The so-called wise and understanding in the eyes of our world. And you've revealed these things to those who are looking from below, the little children. That's your gracious will, God. He hides the revelation of Jesus from the world's wise and understanding and reveals them to the lowly. Isn't it a good thing that Jesus withholds knowledge of himself from the proud? Just looking at our own hearts and knowing how easily they're corrupted and how even knowledge can turn into a basis for more corruption and pride, it would only fan the the wicked flames of pride even further to give us more and more disclosure in a place of arrogance. But besides the fact that it's dangerous for the proud to understand Jesus, it's also impossible by definition. Why? Because to seek glory for ourselves is to believe a lie in the depths of our heart. It is to believe a lie that denies God and deifies ourselves. That's what pride is. And so it's simply incompatible to see the truth and to also have this lie in our hearts. With this lie entrenched in our soul, we cannot see the truth of God as He's revealed in Christ. Listen to Isaiah 57 verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. Everything in this verse so far has been about how great and high up God is. And then he says, and also, and I dwell also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Only from the low place do we see our exalted God. And that's the case as he's revealed himself in Jesus. There is simply no other vantage point 
to see Jesus but from the low place. And of course, the masterful irony of the story is that the man, the one man in the whole story who truly sees Jesus, who calls him the son of David from the start, who expects mercy from him, is the man who can't see. The man who in a sensory sense, with physical eyes, he's the least perceptive one. But spiritually, he has everyone else beaten. Even all the disciples, he's, he's ahead of them. Now, I promise we did not plan this. Last week, we were reflecting on the death. We've mentioned before our dear brother and uh, pastor elder of this church, Smokey Nevins, who was blind. And we saw Jesus' definition of kingdom greatness as service there in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. And it was only in God's providence, this timing. What a great fit, though. We could say our brother Smokey was a consummate self-denying servant. And once again, we did not plan this. But the next text, as we march through the Gospel of Mark, shows us our brother as an example. That he was a man like Bartimaeus, blind in physical eyes, but very perceptive in spiritual things. He saw in his soul the beauty of Christ through the words of Scripture. And he ministered out of a heart that saw the glory of Jesus. So be warned, friends, don't think that we can hoard glory for ourselves without that affecting our spiritual perception. Our ability to see Jesus depends closely on how we position ourselves, how we understand ourselves, whether we place ourselves on the heights of ambition or lower ourselves into the depths of childlike faith, childlike simplicity. Which side of the vent are you standing on? We're not entitled to honors from Christ. We're not entitled to spiritual insight from Christ. We come to Him like this man as beggars and no more or else we won't see anything. But on the other hand, be encouraged because no matter how small and overlooked you may be in the world's eyes, this is a word of great hope. You're not too small and too unimportant for Jesus Christ. He sees you. He looks for people like you. He listens to voices like yours. Like he caught this man's voice. He strained this man's voice out of the whole noise of the crowd. A man crying for mercy. He listens very carefully for lowly voices. He hears you and he knows you. So don't bother coming to Jesus to have your ego puffed up. Don't bother coming to Jesus to amass treasures and honors for yourself. Come to him needy and broken. Come to Him for mercy. If that's what you come to Him for, if that's what you look to Him for, you'll find mercy and rich abundance. Jesus is here for you if what you want is mercy. Crowds of people could not keep Him away from you if what you cry out for is mercy on your sin-afflicted soul. So we've seen the man's purity of heart. Now the second matter to consider is his sight of Jesus. His sight of Jesus. Given that this man can see Jesus, what does he see? How does he understand him? Well, in short, he is the Christ or the Messiah. When he calls him twice the son of David. Now, this, is, this is, means that he was the descendant of the great King David. Promised by God throughout the Old Testament as the anointed coming Savior and ruler for Israel. And ultimately for all the nations. So in saying son of David, he's uh, citing this promise that there would be a son of David who would rule forever on the throne. 
And he's claiming that that is in fact who Jesus is. Just as we hear in one of many texts that deal with this in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 37 verse 24, hundreds of years after the historical David and hundreds of years before Jesus, Ezekiel writes, My servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. So that's the, the, the Davidic hope is what this man is pinning to Jesus. For this man to call him the son of David is to confess he's the Messiah, the promised Savior. It's also foreshadowing what's going to happen in the next text, uh, Mark 11, ver- uh, verse 1 through 11, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, when they all cry out, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. So this man is starting to get us ready for Jesus's entrance to Jerusalem. But as we look through the story and try to understand how does this man see Jesus, we can see three things that point to him believing in Jesus as the Christ. First, he calls him, I already said this, he calls him the son of David, which seems to be an indicator he's claiming that you're the Christ, you're the anointed one. Secondly, he cries out for mercy, which is a kind of salvation, at least a salvation from his physical ailment. So he believes that Jesus is disposed toward giving mercy. And thirdly, in making a request like that, you don't ask any old person to heal your blindness. He's revealing his assumption that Jesus has supernatural power at his disposal, divine power. Like we read of in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 4 and 5, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God. That is against His enemies. But He goes on, He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. You do not ask any person to heal your blindness. But, but when you have these promises that God will come and save and God will heal the blind, that's who you're asking. Now all these clues about the man's faith prepare us to discover the otherwise stunning answer that Jesus gives in verse 52. His request to heal, what does He say? Go your way, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Now that word that's translated made you well is the typical verb for save throughout the New Testament. Then it can be translated either way. It can have to do with health or it can have to do kind of more theologically. We, we use the terminology of salvation. And Jesus spoke this way earlier in Mark. You may recall way back in chapter 5, there was that woman who had been bleeding, had a bleeding disorder. She was infirmed and she, she was very lowly and very forgotten. And she reached out and touched the hem of Jesus' garment and she was healed. And what did he say to her? He said, daughter, wow, Daughter, your faith has made you well. It's the same word. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And even before that, way, way back in chapter 2, he had seen the evidence. He'd seen these, these men going through great lengths to bring a sick man or a paralyzed man to him to be healed. And he saw in their actions, he saw faith evident. And what did he say in response to seeing their faith? Mark 2, 5. Son, your sins are forgiven. So I believe that for Jesus to speak of this man being made well or saved, this is a nod not just to the blindness, but to faith's final and grandest outcome, which is salvation from sin. Which is benefiting from Christ's coming death on the cross in the place of sinners. It's receiving forgiveness from sin and being spared God's wrath that we deserve. And it's being welcomed into the kingdom of Christ. 
And we've dealt with this before with Jesus' physical healings. What's going on? What are we seeing about His physical healings? His salvation has physical aspects because to be saved from our sin is to await the new creation and the resurrection of our bodies on the final day. When all of sin's effect, spiritual and physical, will at last be rolled away like the stone that vainly covered Jesus' grave. All these benefits and more belong to all who believe. This is what it means to be made well in the fullest sense. But again, we're asking the question, who gets to see Jesus? And, and, and when we look at it that way, what is so encouraging about this story is that Jesus is the one who grants sight to the blind. He gives spiritual perception to those who lack it. It's His gift. And what's the way to get it? How do you see who Jesus is? You appeal for mercy. You lower yourself. You acknowledge your own inability to see as you ought. There's an implicit acknowledgement in this man's request. I'm blind. I can't see. I need mercy. Confess your sinfulness to Him in your need of salvation and wait on Him. Stay in that low place. And He will show Himself to you in the ravishing splendor of His holiness and truth and love. Jesus is rich in mercy to show Himself to the needy who ask. Jesus is rich in mercy to save the sinful who call on Him. We cannot adequately understand Him by ourselves, but by throwing ourselves at His mercy and asking Him for new eyes, He will never turn us away. So don't lose heart. Be humble and persistent in your appeals. Knock on the door and say, show me your glory. Show me the wonder of how you came to be our crucified King. He's able and willing to give it. But in this, He's testing our hearts. Are we looking for that insider knowledge to stoke our pride again? Or or are we desperate beggars, hungry to know Him and to receive His saving mercy? If you haven't yet come to Jesus Christ, you need to be honest about your sin and honest about your neediness. And you need to come to Him and appeal for mercy. And I urge you to seek Him right now. To turn the eyes of your heart to Him and say, show me yourself, I need you. I don't have what it takes to save myself. I don't have what it takes to understand you. I need everything from you. And nobody who comes to Him in any measure of trust, any measure of neediness, even with weak faith or incomplete faith or struggling, you don't even know, am I a Christian or not? I don't even know if I believe. No one who looks to Him will ever be cast out. That you can know. He is merciful to those who seek Him needing mercy. So we've seen purity of heart and we've seen the sight of Jesus this man had. Where does this vision lead Bartimaeus in our story? Thirdly, it's the fullness of blessing. Fullness of blessing. We saw in verse 52 that Jesus pronounced this man made well or saved. But before that, we skipped over this little instruction he gives at the beginning of what he says in verse 52. Go your way. Go your way. He's saying, go on. Go wherever you want. You're free now. You can see now. You got what you asked for. 
What a world of possibilities has just opened up to this man. Can you imagine all the places he probably dreamed of going? And all the things he probably dreamed of doing if somehow ever he could miraculously regain his sight. And now is the moment. He has it. And what does he do? Jesus says, go on. You're free. Go your way. And he says, okay. And he falls in line with Jesus. And he follows him. He goes the way he wants to go. And in Mark, following, this, this verbiage of following is, is quite often refers not just to traveling together with Jesus, but to a thicker commitment of discipleship. It's the word Jesus had used in his great call for disciples in 834 when he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This man has denied himself. He's received mercy from Jesus and now freed and able to see what does he do? He follows him. He says, where else would I go? Where else would I want to be? He doesn't want to follow Jesus as a spectator, but as a disciple. And why wouldn't he? He knows who Jesus is. He's the Christ. He knows that he has mercy overflowing and divine power to heal infirmities like blindness. Where else would he want to go? How could he not follow him? But catch the pattern. Jesus gives the man sight and he spontaneously responds by following him. He freely responds when he sees by following him. Jesus didn't bargain with this guy. If I heal you, will you promise to follow me? Will you promise to join the number of my disciples? I need more. No, it was the opposite in every way. He first heals him without strings attached and the vision that he gains of Jesus' goodness to him draws his heart in to follow. He wants more of Jesus, of course. He has spiritual perception, which then supplies an eager devotion for all his life to be in in following Him, the one who saved him. And when we really see Jesus for who He is, we want to follow Him. Imagine you're exploring a massive cave system and at some dreadful point you come to realize that you're lost. It's completely dark. You're like, you're like Tom Sawyer, stuck and lost in a cave. And you don't know where you are and you don't know how to get back the way you came in. And you're just trying to fight off the urge to panic as you stumble around in the dark for a while, cursing yourself for having explored a cave system in the first place. Minutes turn to hours. But eventually you turn the corner and you catch the faintest glow of light in the distance. You feel your way a little closer and it gets brighter. It grows brighter and eventually there's no denying it. This is an opening. This is a way out. Now tell me, will you be motivated to follow that light once you've seen it? Do you need complex arguments or threats in order to pursue that glimmer of light? Not at all. You see the gleam of salvation shining ahead of you and at that moment, teams of horses couldn't hold you back. That's where you want to be. Light, salvation, understanding of what's real and true and good. What more could the heart want? And we have all these things in Jesus. In your light do we see light. We say to the one who said to us, I am the light of the world. To see Jesus, to really see Him, is to have your whole life in a moment rearranged. 
Suddenly everything else you plan to do or plan to be or plan to obtain, in one sense, it no longer really matters. You're captivated by the beauty of the One who loves your soul, who came to lay down His life for you and who rose again to keep and shepherd you. And so we say to Him, when we see Him, we say in our hearts, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be My people. And your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. This is all from the words of Ruth, prefiguring the church believing in Christ. And we might add to those words, and where you rise from death, I too will rise. But then we go and we think in our hearts about what a burden it is to live the Christian life. How following Jesus is such a burden to us. How can we ever think such a thing? Have we seen Jesus? Now it's true, the spiritual vision of faith will remain incomplete throughout all the days of our pilgrimage in this life. And the purity of our commitment to Christ will be incomplete all through the days of our lives. It's only in future glory that our vision of Him and our love offering of worship to Him will be fulfilled. So we're not preaching perfection in this life. But if you've gazed at the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, you will not continue aspiring to live for yourself. Your life will be marked by a desire for Him. A zeal to put off the old ways and to fall in with Him in discipleship, imitating His love and His fear of the Lord and His wisdom and His truth and His holiness. If you've seen the goodness of the Lord and if He's declared you saved by faith, devote yourself to Him anew. I pray that seeing Him as we see Him in this text will once again inflame your heart to follow, whether for the first time or once again as one who's followed Him for years. You've tasted of His eternal life. Now give Him yours. Don't relent and don't hold any of it back. And leave off any thought of the Christian life being a heavy burden, a dutiful obligation. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they alone can see Jesus. The pure in heart, in this case, are the childlike and lowly. If we're pure in heart, then then we don't follow Jesus as a way to get something else that we really want. Like, oh, following Jesus, I can have power and honor. No, we get the mercy that Jesus loves to give so that we can follow Him. To see Jesus rightly as He is, is to see Him as the Savior. It's to see Him as the One who fulfills all of God's promises from the Old Testament Scriptures. That He would send His Anointed One to save. It's to see Him as the One who gave His life to redeem sinners who believe. And it's not only to see these things factually, but to believe He is the One rich in mercy for me. Eager to pour out His favor on those who believe. Including you this morning, if you haven't trusted Him yet. And to receive that vision of Jesus is to have our hearts drawn and compelled in one clear direction. It's to see the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. It's to embark on a life of following Him, a life of trusting in His Word and imitating His conduct. It's to say to the One who loved and saved our souls, You are my Lord I have no good apart from you. Let's pray. 
God, we bless you and we thank you for your mercy in showing yourself to us in Christ and giving us the eyes to see Christ. We who are needy, we who have nothing in ourselves to commend to you, aren't you so rich in mercy in the gospel of your Son? Not only to pay for our sins, but to grant us the gift of seeing him, the one who died for us. We pray that every heart here would see him as he is, and that you would draw our souls and our lives ever more comprehensively into following him, trusting him, and devoting ourselves to him. Thank you, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.